Welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinemaholics. It's time for an interview. I think for the first time in Cinemaholics history, we're doing a joint interview. And I know listeners, you're like, a joint interview? John and Will have settled their differences. They don't hate each other as much as they used to. Uh, listener, you spoke too soon. Because no, it's me and Corey. Uh, Corey Woodruff, of course. Uh, Corey, Corey, how do you define yourself these days? Like, how do you plug yourself, describe yourself to people who don't know you too well yet? A uh, bon vivant. That's the only... Uh... <laughs> To be honest, I really don't know what bomb vivant means. I just, I just love the way uh, yeah, it sounds. It a fun little nickname. I mean, yeah. I know, of course, you write for us at In Between Drafts, and you know, yes, I do. Um, you let's see. Text message I, me. That's a big one. I do. Um, I'm, a, I'm a texter of Negroni. Um, I am. Let's see. I write for USA Today's For the Win. I write for uh, lots of movies stuff. Like I, ever since I became a Rotten Tomato certified critic, I just do a lot of self publishing, just because it's just kind of nice to. It's easy. Easier. Yeah, it is. It's nice. Um, I write for the Nashville scene. Um, write for the playlist every now and again. Um, you know, RIP the young folks, which has turned into into between drafts. So I've transferred some of my stuff from there to there. Um, and six one five film is kind of my personal thingy that I do. So um, yeah, I, you know, I'm just writing to write these days, man. Just you know, staying busy. Well, Corey, as happy as I am to have you here, you're not the main event for once. Um, on an episode of your appearance, usually you're the main event, even if you're not on the show. Yeah. But um... no, like one time I came on Cinemaholics and you guys did a whole like 20 minute bit that I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, finally was... like, came in like 20 minutes into the episode. You're just putting like... me through memory lane. I mean, that was, uh, I felt like you deserved that. You didn't even I do did. anything wrong, but at the same time, I did deserve oh. it though. I did something wrong, <laughs> but and I deserved it. But we, we do love you, Corey. We love having yeah. you on. And uh, there's nobody else I could have had on for this because you were the one who first brought this video to the attention of a lot of people uh in, in my sphere at least um and so yeah we just had a great conversation with kevin perjurer the creator of defunct land and so we asked him a bunch of questions about a new video that he made called i think it's called disney channel mystery history of the disney channel theme no disney channel theme a history mystery you got it second yeah yeah second time i got it um, which is a feature length documentary on YouTube and it's, uh, just plain terrific. Uh, Corey, how would you describe this documentary? Well, um, it comes from Kevin Perjurer who does Defunct Land. Um, if you're familiar with Defunct Land, it's like this YouTube series of videos that deal with <clears throat> kind of these like nooks and crannies of theme park culture from like the eighties, nineties, thousands, very heavy on Disney. Um, you know, I think probably the most notable video they've done, um, I might be, it's like the history of the Nickelodeon, um, hotel that was in Orlando. That was, was one of the like first one. ones I ever watched. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. Cause yeah. that one is, uh, I, that came across my feed and I was like, the Nick hotel existed. I didn't dream that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's such like, to me, that's like the series in a nutshell is like, if you remember watching Nickelodeon growing up, you would remember those commercials where, or like on a, you know, like a game show that would be a prize is, you know, they had this like Nickelodeon Holiday Inn that was themed after Nickelodeon. It looked like, you know, the, uh, you know, the Valhalla for, you know, Nickelodeon fans. Like this is just I can where still you smell win. the like spongy carpet from yes. that video. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's just like, if you wanted to be slimed, you know, this is where you go. Um, right. You know, and it obviously fell apart like a lot of things did during that era and you know rather than just like 
do like, a, oh my gosh, do you remember this? Which is like 90% of YouTube nostalgia videos. Um, or like someone's just like reacting like, oh, I remember that. Like, you know. Remember, remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, can start a whole other conversation. But like, you know, what he does with this videos is he like excavates kind of like, you know, like an Indiana Jones, like beginning of Titanic, you know, the guys finding the boat and going through it, like, you know, looking at the parts, how it ticked, how it worked and really spilling out, like, what did it mean? Why did it fail? What does it mean now for us to go back and look at it? Like, and always trying to find like the narrative of the, you know, the showing the slow decay of the hotel and how it kind of slowly fell apart. And he finds the story. Yeah, yeah, and he tells absolutely. the story like yeah through yes. that format that like really makes it compelling to watch. Yes, and like he's a, and again it's cliche for a lot of people to say this about what they do, but like in a very genuine way he is a storyteller and he is somebody who is finding all of these stories throughout a lot of the nostalgia we have growing up. I mean, you know, John and I and you know a lot of the people we you know commune with in our little circle are very big nostalgia hounds. We we know where those points are in our paths and can point to them and you know really talk about it and think about it. But what I think what Defunct Land has done that's so interesting is that they're showing it. They're actually going and doing the hard work and not just remembering. Uh, I think that's the power of nostalgia. It's when you go past just the act of remembering what it was. Yeah, um, and some of his work isn't even nostalgia based because his last feature length documentary was. Was Disney's Fast Pass, yes. uh, Complicated History, which mm-hmm. I, you know, we talked about it in the interview, and I, I know, like, for real, I, I would share the Fast Pass video with like people in my life who uh, mm-hmm. would not normally like watch YouTube videos, right? Because it was like mm-hmm. that. It's like, oh, you like documentaries, you like things that are like kind of this niche seeming subject, but that's yes. that's more of a thing that's ongoing, like the Fast Pass thing, yes. the history of it, but also how we got to like where it is today. It's really well done and like mm-hmm. enticing you, which leads us to his new one, right, which is uh, about the Disney Channel theme song. Yes. Which, I, and, and I, Corey, you know, when I was watching the video, we didn't talk about this in the interview, but when he was like, oh, how does it go? I for sure remembered it. I could hum it. Mm-hmm. Were, were you able to hum it too? I have to believe no, you did. I completely you couldn't? forgot the what. what the you were more of a Nickelodeon heard... kid, huh? Well, it's weird. Like, I kind of, I, I, I was equally dispersed between the three big ones, Cartoon Network, okay. Nickelodeon, and Disney Channel. I didn't have a, fa- I mean, Nickelodeon is probably more my, like, comfort zone, but like, that was, I my, that was my main. I always yeah. started in Nickelodeon on cable, yeah. and then I'd go to Cartoon Network, and yes. then I would go to Disney Channel. But yeah. a lot of the time, I wouldn't like what was on Nick and Cartoon Network. So I, I ended yes. up on Disney, like, a lot, honestly. Oh, yeah. I mean, my dream as a kid was being a movie surfer. Like, that was, like, that was the goal. Like if I was going to accomplish something, still like, is in some way. It is, yeah, and it's less it's less cute now. But like you know, like you know, if I describe myself as a movie surfer now, it's just kind of one of those things where people. I wanted like, to hey. write a Disney Channel original movie, which also gets mentioned in this yes. documentary. That's the thing, and I could remember that song, but like the second I heard that, da, 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 it's just like you know, a, just like a a Niagara Falls rush of memories just like flooded my head. Like, Oh, like, no, we're not I, humming yeah. the mighty, mighty boss tones, by the way. No, no, not at all. And that's Which, had you like, ever made that connection before? Cause I certainly had not. No, but I was like, Oh second, yeah, like, it's the I same. I thought that's where the video of... was going. I was like, Oh my right. gosh, is this like some, like some mighty, mighty boss tones history? But no, I mean, thankfully that was not where we went, but right. Right. Um, but all, but you know, they were featured in, at least like one or two Disney Channel original movies, I think. Didn't Brink have that in there, or mm. one of the Johnny Tsunami, or one of the? I don't know. I, don't, I feel like I that's, that's got to be a needle drop in like one decom. 
the impression that I get, I don't remember that being a Disney Channel thing. I remember other things showing up in Disney yeah. Channel around that era, but no. Do I you remember when the guy that did Mambo Number no. Five did like the Disney version of it and it yeah. played in like movie theaters and stuff? I do remember that. I remember Where's that uh, video. That's what well, I didn't they also play that in like Stuart Little and okay, we're getting yeah. off all kinds of tangents. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we should leave it to Kevin Perjurer to <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, contextualize this uh, documentary mm. for us because this was this was an amazing conversation i yes i think like listening to him talk i could listen to the guy talk about the way that he makes this stuff and like what makes like where he got his insights from you know Absolutely. what his process was how things changed along the way i mean it's this is a really great conversation even if you have no interest whatsoever in the subject matter it's a great exploration i think of how people choose the stories to tell Yes. Right. In any format. Like there was a very like, I think, a insightful sort of a series of like I could hear him like reasoning in real time. Like this is what I was trying to get across. But th these were the like specific no nonsense challenges that hit me along the way or the not even challenges, but just like the wrinkles that turned into something else as he went. It's fascinating mm -hmm. stuff. Oh, yeah. And like I know the part of the you know catch of it is like he goes on this journey to find who did this theme. And obviously, if you can guess by doing like a 90 plus minute documentary, he doesn't necessarily find the answer easy. So it's this whole journey of him discovering who did this and, you know, excavating lots of different things and looking at that era of Disney Channel specifically and kind of going through the history of that as well. And the answers are very unexpected. Um, I'll, I'll let the conversation deal with that more. But I think that, you know, if you want to pause this now and go watch this and come back, you can begin to see, like, what a journey this is and really how the, some themes pop out that you just couldn't guess would be there um, yeah. when you start watching something like this. And, you know, like, I think Defunctland has been around so long where it shouldn't be surprising that this is just so insightful and interesting. But I think it's... I think it's the best thing I've seen them do. I mean, there is just a certain level where, like, you know. And you've seen a uh, lot on YouTube. Like, we should. I have, yeah. <laughs> I've watched a lot of their stuff. Um, you know, it's the the one that he talked about it a little bit on there, but the one about Disney's America has been my, one of my favorites recently um, in, like, a 40-minute. He does it like a Ken Burns documentary, actually. And we, he talked about Ken Burns, but that's how it plays out. Um, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's just, there's just so much interesting stuff that he's doing, but yeah. We're saying our favorites. I got to go superstar limo. Oh, wow. I need to see that. Is that the one about like the worst Disney attraction ever? Yes. I need to watch that. Okay. Yeah. Their worst attraction ever. That, yeah. that was, I think I saw that after the Nick hotel one and I was okay. like, I was hooked from that day forward. Yeah. yeah. I need um, to watch that. Was that a California thing? Yes. It was the okay. uh, California um, adventure. It was part of their first batch of like oh, attractions and okay. the, the history behind superstar limo and like what it originally was supposed to be and certain things tying into like a, a certain uh, famous death and how that impacted. I mean, you just got to see it because okay, like that. it's, it's amazing. Um, well, I'm an Orlando guy. So uh, you know, the California stuff is always interesting because I didn't really experience it. Yeah. That. I hadn't been to California adventure until 2016, a year before wow. that video came out. So I was like a total noob to all this stuff because I was a fellow East Coaster. So anyway, without further ado, I know you and I could talk about defunct land and uh, YouTube in general for, for hours upon hours. But, but that's let's, not uh, why they're here. That's not yeah, why they're, they're here. here for, they're here for Gavin and then, uh, you know, rightfully so. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Kevin Perger. You're watching Disney Channel. So Raven, and you're watching Disney Channel. All 
I am so excited to introduce our guest today. He is the creator of Defunct Land, which is a popular YouTube channel devoted to demystifying the history behind theme park rides and entertainment experiences and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show, Kevin Perjurer. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this, uh, to chat with us, even though I'm sure you had plenty of better things to do. Uh, we're really happy you're here. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Now, after I release a video like this, it's I'm, I'm just happy to talk about it because I'm, I'm delaying working on another. So no, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me. I, I take it it's strategic that you release this video right before the like Thanksgiving holiday, right? It's like you could just kind of like decompress for a minute. Yeah, I mean, it's more that just uh, gives people something to watch over the holiday, uh, especially when they're big uh, feature length stuff like this. You know, I figure people watch, you know, Monday and Tuesday usually at work and people watch a lot of YouTube at work um, and then maybe they'll go show it to their families. So that's the main reason it's kind of weird being uh, just releasing it and trying to get it out on a certain date. So uh, I usually, yeah, I did this with this and FastPass, and I'll probably do it again next year on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. It's just, uh, it worked out nice both times, so. Yeah, just be like Spielberg. Do one thing a year, like one movie. It's perfect. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, um, Kevin, I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of your stuff over the years, and, you know, I think it's exciting that you're, really starting out to do kind of this full length, you know, narrative thing. I think the first narrative kind of, or not really narrative, but like documentary full length thing that you did was on that uh, band on the Epcot attraction, I believe. The, uh, yeah, the Tomorrowland yeah, uh, yeah, space yeah. stage, live from yeah, the space yeah, stage. Yeah. And that one was directed by Matthew Serrano, who's a collaborator of mine. And I produced that one and creatively uh, produced it with him. And yeah, that was, uh, that was our first feature length uh, doc that we did. Um, we've had some longer videos, some 40 minute ones from some 50 minute ones, but I think the only ones that have broken an hour and then all of them are around an hour and a half are Halix live from the space stage. And then fast pass was last year's and this year's was uh, Disney channel. Uh, so yeah, but yeah, so th we have three now that I would consider a feature documentaries that play out like features. Yeah. I think both of them are on Letterboxd, aren't they? Like I think, uh, cause I, I logged it, the Disney channel theme one. Um, oh, I, I don't. I yeah, I don't. Pass. I don't look at letterboxed. I'm always afraid, you know, because people are very uh, precious with their letterboxed, uh, their rankings. And it's as somebody that makes something and sees people review it, you know, it's hard to remember that three stars in a lot of people's heads like that's great. You know, and it's just, you know, because I'm going up against like Shawshank on their own <laughs> spectrum, you know, so it's a weird thing. And then also the posters that because I don't release the the post posters, thumbnails are the opposite of poster size. They're 16 by yeah. 9. I don't know what the posters need to be, what, 10 by 17 or something like that. And so someone, someone out there will Photoshop a poster for the letterboxed. And it's always interesting to see it. So it's like my video title and then a poster that, you know. Thank you to whoever does that, but they're not not necessarily what I would go with with the letterboxed posters. It tells you something, though, right, that people are willing to do that. They're like, I got to put this it's on letterboxed, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, it means cool. so much. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. And kind of on that note, I, I'm really curious because, it, it, you know, doing this once a year is one thing, right? But one thing I've always noticed about all of your stuff, you know, even even something like the handwich, you know, or something that's a little bit shorter, maybe like you said, 40 minutes or something like that. It, there's a lot of production that goes into it. I know you've got a team with you. You put a lot of work, obviously, into this. 
But this one in particular, I noticed that the the quality, the the production quality is even a cut higher in a lot of respects in the FastPass one. The FastPass one, you had like big 3D models. So uh, my, my basic question, I mean, like how long did this overall take you? If you can, uh, you know, give a little rough timeline. So I imagine it's not like the only thing that you do, you know, for like the last year. No, no, it was actually it, this, this and FastPass are both stalls to a longer video that I've been creating. Now, it's actually not a longer video. It's probably going to end up being 40 minutes, but it's such a dense uh, documentary and so visually it's 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 a visual album style documentary so we wrote music for it and we're doing all sorts of different visual things um, and so that's taken so long just because you know music production takes so long and then the visual production takes so long that I try to come up with these little ideas uh, that I can knock out quickly in between and hand which was like a successful version of that um, where it's you know it's a one-off uh, it's 20 minutes 30 minutes and it's a very small story because you see Handwich and you're like, that's a, you know, how long can you talk about a cone, a bread cone? Um, and then, you know, with, with fast pass, I was like, oh, this will be a great 30 minute thing, maybe 20 minutes. I don't know if I can get to 30 minutes. And then of course, you know, after research, I was like, oh, this is, this is very, very long. This is much bigger. And the Disney channel was even more surprising than fast pass because it was also supposed to be a very short thing. I came up with the idea, I think around May or June, of this year, I was looking at, um, I was watching commercials from Disney Channel like I do, just because I, I love watching commercial breaks. I think they're so interesting. Disney Channel specifically gives me a lot of ideas for Defunct Land because they have a lot of parks-related content and, um, in those commercials. And then I just kept hearing the theme, um, and I was like, well, where did that theme come from? And I thought, oh, it would be a cute video, like a 20 to 30-minute investigation. And it was actually a way to save on time because I could film myself investigating which would theoretically in this version of the story be faster than than finding archive work for b-roll for every single every five ten seconds you have to find a new image versus maybe if I'm at the computer that's a minute and there you go and that, that would be faster and I was very wrong about that yeah, and it was kind say. of the op opposite of the process opposite of what ended up happening you know a lot of people say like oh I think the worst uh, people within the you know I don't want to die people that other people that have done documentaries other people that even are just you know being commenters online accuse uh, defunct land in general of being like a slideshow um, or a Wikipedia page which is fine I mean people are you know have their criticisms um, but you know, and some people just want to be rude, but it's like, I'm like, well, you, do have you ever seen Ken Burns? Like there's some <laughs> obvious, uh, there's some obvious inspiration going on. Like, you know, this is, it's a very common documentary trope to, to do. And it, and what, you know, kind of bugs me about that is that it takes longer to do that, to make that slideshow. It's obviously not what it is, but it takes longer to do that than it is doing literally any other form of video production, just as far as how long did it take you to produce versus how, what length did you get out of it? Because in order to create a minute worth of content, you know, I don't let pictures stay on the screen for longer than 10 seconds for usually. So that's at least six photos per minute. And when you're doing something like fast pass, it's 90 minutes, then it starts to really add up. Um, as far as how long that goes. So my idea with Disney Channel around May or June was this is going to be a 30-minute thing. It's a really short thing. Let's do it. 
and then maybe I can film myself, screen record the research aspect of it. It's a built-in story, and it'll be real fast. And I was very wrong, as I always am, and it ended up not being that at all. So, yeah, but it did start around May or June um, of this year. So, Yeah, and also, I mean, just not even just having those photos, like having to put so many images in a minute but making sure they're accurate – that they like oh, right, actually yeah. add context. Like people just think that it's like, oh, I'm just going to Google search. And like they, no, a lot of people no. don't have a sense, right, of like how much goes into that, the copywriting and all of it. Yeah, yeah. And because we're on YouTube, we, you know, we, we do on-screen sources, something that you would never see in a, in a documentary to film festival. And I think that gives us more leeway. I try to sort, I try to reach out to as many copyright holders as possible, especially if I'm using multiple clips from them. Obviously, uh, as far as copyright goes, we kind of assume, well, we just know that someone like Disney, if it's their copyright, it's Disney's. This is a documentary, fair use. We obviously lean on. Um, but yeah, I mean, with, with especially with the Funkland proper, I'm all like I'm thinking about every single photo I put on the screen. It's definitely nothing like that. So with Disney Channel, I was excited because I was like, oh, I I do film production, even though you never really see it on Defunctland, or you see it in weird ways that you don't think about. Um, and then I can just do that, and that's just and then I'll just it's just content, and it'll be a great little history thing, a little journalistic. I I put a you know a name to a sound, and it'll have value just for that, and it'll be over. And, uh, and like I keep saying, that's not what it ended up being. Um, but that was the concept. And then it uh, spiraled out of control from there. So, but yeah, that was the idea. Right on. Well, one thing that your documentary really shows to me is like, as much as it's kind of using kind of the Kim Bernsey classical format, it is kind of pushing into, I think, a new innovative way that a lot of DIY documentaries are doing and going straight to YouTube. Um, there's a great thing that SB Nation does called Secret Base. I don't know how familiar you are with that or with John Very Boy. familiar with John Boy's work. Oh, very, yeah. very familiar, yes. And it's like you got you and that are kind of to me like the leaders of doing this like very kind of it's very centric on pop culture. You know, you're going into the entertainment space, they're going into sports, like and kind of crafting these stories that I don't think you could really tell if you weren't using this format. Um, you know, I just feel like there's just such a very specific slice of kind of investigative reporting that can go into kind of feeding these, you know, very graphic heavy, you know, clip, you know, kind of put it all together. And it's kind of a big collage of, you know, something that I feel like people don't really have a grasp on if they're not doing it in these spaces you can do on YouTube. So, you know, I say all that to say, like, you're doing something I think is fresh, but what was kind of your influence in like the documentary space to be able to kind of format something like this? Well, I mean, you mentioned John Boys and, uh, or Secret Base and, you know, I, I love being mentioned in the same breath as Secret Base. I think what he does is amazing. All the whole team is amazing, and that's that's exactly where I want to be. I think he 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 and his team could literally do a documentary on anything, and it would be great. And I respect that they've stuck with sports because it like you know I'm very much a believer, and it doesn't matter what the story is um, as long as you tell it the best way. And I think he proves that with by staying in those arenas. And of course, if he wants to expand, that's great. But you know, it gives me hope that. You know, with my stuff, because theme parks are often regarded as a, a niche, niche kind of thing, um, but they're not, and they're very uh, 
they're very they're very part of the culture and you can expand a lot of different ways so you know and i actually didn't start watching secret base until very recently so as far as influences for this series and for this film specifically goes i'm trying to think i mean i leaned i leaned a lot more on narrative film for my inspirations and i do documentaries as you can definitely see and you know everything is a something you know fast pass was a monster movie um, and, uh, you know, they're in literally there's a monster that gets out of control. And, you know, I, I base that a lot of narrative, you know, the structure is based off of narrative monster movies of trying to cage the monster and, and how those stories often play out. And we've done other things, you know, Astro World was one we did way back and that was a classic Western and that whole park died. So everybody dies, very spaghetti Western. Um, and then this one was just classic noir. I mean, it was a modern noir. Um, so, you know, it's not. You know the the dame in the twenties smoking detective noir uh, necessarily, or the, uh, um, but it was much more uh, modern noir as, as seen in the visual style. A lot more neons, uh, neon lighting, um, a lot more um, kind of liminal space, and then just the idea that you know I think a lot of old noirs kind of lean on the idea of you know, the functioning alcoholic detective. Um, and the new noirs lean much more heavily on the troubled detective, uh, the detective that has something wrong with, with him or, you know, or her, or something wrong with them um, in some sort of way. And so that that's what kind of, you know, eventually when I started piecing this together, I, I kind of leaned into that aesthetic more than anything. And that's where the structure came from. And then I think, okay, so what happens in those kind of things? Well, you have, you know, the, detec you know, I, the detective is struggling with something that is unrelated to the mystery and then it connects to the mystery um, in some specific way. Uh, and so that was obviously in this film, it would be my, the, the running thread of like, whether this is a documentary or whether it's a YouTube video, which is kind of, it's a tangent for the majority of the film. And then it comes to a head later on once the mystery is solved. Um, spoilers. Uh, but the, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah. And then, the, you know, just visually with that, trying to expand it, into something of that nature. I don't know because I, I try to think of other documentaries that are this and I, you know, I struggle. I think a lot of political documentaries uh, have done similar type uh, sequences, you know, not to make any sort of statements on uh, uh, correct or, or, you know, trying to promote any certain viewpoints of these documentary filmmakers who may or may not have uh, gone one way or another in the past 10 years. But this idea of this kind of, um, kind of personality-led documentary, which I usually shy away from, my personality kind of comes through. But if you're asking me about, like, what other documentaries I can see this in, it's much more of those type than a Ken Burns. And I don't want to do this all the time either. It's kind, it's kind, of, a, it's kind of a hard thing to, uh, to navigate. Um, but I hope that kind of answers the question. I definitely lean more to narratives. I look more to narratives because I don't watch a lot of documentaries. I try... Um, but I, I, I have, I struggled the same way that I think a lot of filmmakers struggle to watch movies and that it's either you watch it and you, you could have done it better or you watch it and you're like, oh, this is just so good. I got to go make something right now. Like, you know, it's, if it's really good, you're like, I, oh my gosh, I got to go make something. That, that's kind of how I do when I watch documentaries. So sometimes when somebody, but you have to watch this, a great documentary and I'm like, I can't, um, because I know that if I watch that, I'm going to go 
I'm going to get sent on a creative tangent and that's all I'm going to be working on for another year because I'm sure it's good, but I just don't want to uh, distract myself creatively. But anyways, that's, that's tangential, but yeah, narratives are definitely what I would lean on in, 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 in sort of reference and style. And then as far as the detective story goes, other things that played into it, like, okay, well, like what, how does that play out in a three X structure? You know, the, the very classic rom-com three X structure at the end of the second act or beginning of the third act is the breakup or the misunderstanding. And then in, in noirs or detective stories most of the time that is the low point where the detective gives up and then at their lowest moment they have the aha moment um kind of trying to recreate some of those moments in the documentary format and trying to make it feel like it is a noir a modern noir while also being which is not just something i'm interested in aesthetically it's also just really funny to me because it is about something so specific and something so low stakes that why is this such a you know pastiche why is this so why is the music so moody it's it's about something so so silly at first and that's that that's also something i'm always you know i'm always loving to play with because i love to lean heavy into genre tropes for topics that at first glance maybe do not deserve or need it and i just think that's just a funny thing to do kind of or it, it provides uh avenues for humor so well, you say that's low stakes, and I get what you're saying because I'm like, yeah, that like when you bring in the viewer, they're like, sort of like, oh yeah, Disney Channel's theme, like what, yeah, who, you know, it's just like basic curiosity, and it's just sort of like a passing, like I'd like to know that. That sounds interesting, but then what ends up happening is like to me, what's not low stakes is then you sort of bring everybody around this sort of shared experience of like, hey. Your childhood actually happened. Uh, it wasn't this like isolated thing. And, you you know, these are specific things that we all kind of share. And then I don't know, I feel like it's like a Trojan horse almost. And so that's the thing I like about it is like there's that initial contrast that you're saying. And that's what makes the video like, you know, that's the main hook. And so you get into it. But then you get to the point where you're like, wow, I, I, I'm feeling emotions right now about like a totally new subject that I hadn't really given a second thought before. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, that's, that was definitely my takeaway. And I'm, I'm sure plenty of other people I do want to bring up too, because I can't speak for Corey, but you know, we watch a lot of documentaries at Sundance and I for sure like was watching this and I feel like this like feels right at home with a lot of the best of those documentaries, just because I don't think the really good ones ever feel like other documentaries to me, at least they usually are way more inventive than that, or they usually do sort of stand on their own as sort of like, oh yeah, this is not trying to be, you know, like a, a Ken Burns doc. It's not trying to be waiting for Superman or something we've already seen a bunch of times. It's actually kind of going for a different thing entirely. Um, and I, again, I don't want to speak for Corey, but I, I want to believe Corey that you would agree with that, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, documentary right now, I think is going through such an exciting evolution in terms of like, not even the ethics, but in like the way you can make a documentary, right? Like the different ways you can weave in narrative, like, uh, Christian Johnson's Dick Johnson is dead to me is like the main like example right now of like how, documentarians are able to kind of usurp the traditional format um, and really create something that is a documentary, but also weaves in all of these kind of like, you know, recreations and very kind of 
you know, clever film tricks with the, I don't know. It's just, there's something about like the stoic documentary style that, you know, that it's kind of, it's becoming so tired. Like you watch something like, uh, my octopus teacher and it's kind of the, 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 the definitive like old school style of documentary that kind of grows a little wearisome as time goes on. And didn't that win the Oscar kind of too, Corey? Huh? Didn't that win last year it for did. this documentary? It, it, wow. won, it won the pandemic year. That was just like yeah, came yeah. out of nowhere on Netflix and just like everybody liked the octopus and it was just such a weird uh The original Squid Game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's like it was the Finding Nemo prequel no one needed. Um but I don't know. The the one documentary for me that was in my head the whole time I was watching this, interestingly enough, was Catfish. Um, because of the way that that documentary builds onto something that's kind of like, you know, in their world, they're like going for this really weird internet phenomenon that's going on at the kind of the ad in the social media, people pretending to be something. And then as the big reveal in that movie keeps pushing in, the documentary completely changes and becomes something much more touching and human about loneliness and about what people will do to find community. And that's exactly what this documentary did for me. And I know that that's kind of kind of the big thing and obviously we won't talk about spoilers but it's 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 an incredibly moving thing and i'm really curious like there's obviously well, we a lot of talk, we we can talk about spoilers okay go go i mean i'm fine with yeah. it just go watch it it's been out for it's been yeah. out for a week which is like 30 years in youtube time yeah. i mean <laughs> yeah we'll we'll yeah. say it from here yeah if you haven't seen the doc yeah, yet you can check watch it, out. it. it's but free yeah, it's, <laughs> it's out there let's go it is so, but uh, this is but, not know. avatar the way of water we have very <laughs> good access to it but yeah. like yeah i guess i'll just say like you find who created the documentary or the documentary the uh, yeah you find who created the documentary it's really easy to find that but um yeah, that's me exactly uh, but yeah yes. i find, find who created the theme Yes, yeah, you find a creative theme, and it ends up being this huge rumination on someone who has passed and someone who, you know, you had to create a whole documentary to find out who they were. I mean, you went through this whole, like, investigative process to discover somebody who created this little, you know, theme that is just so recognizable to so many, and it just unearths this idea of creation and the artist's relation with the creation and, like, what happens if you create something that outlasts you to the point where no one remembers who you are, but they remember what you've done. It's just something so poignant about particularly what you're doing, and you're speaking to this entire generation of creators who are having to kind of live with this kind of generational pull of being, you know, told that you're going to do big things, you're going to be special, and you kind of have this idea in your head. And then when you end up kind of even getting to a platform that you're able to share things with people, and it's like, that's not enough, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And then you talk to all these fascinating people in this space of creating these themes and doing these advertising things for studios and, you know, different, you know, clients and such. And they're really proud of their work. They're happy in it. And, you know, not only did I feel like this film brought a light to kind of that unsung artist, but it just kind of was kind of reassuring, I think, to just like an entire generation of folks who don't, you know, they may not feel like they're where they want to be, but it almost kind of qualifies it. You're where you are and you're where you need to be right now. And There's I an just, alarming you know, lack of cynicism you hear in yes. their voices. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, and I, and I, you know, I totally agree with all that. I mean, I, I'm glad that it hit with people and, uh, that, I mean, that was kind of, I went, I'm trying to think of how to talk about the end. Well, I, I will say that, I mean, 
you talked about other documentaries at Sundance and how each one's different. Um, and that's the, that's the most interesting thing about, um, you know, Ken Burns is the same every time. Um, and it's, it's great if that's what you're looking for. And, but the, the, and it's, I think it's easy from like a public perception to say, well, Ken Burns, you know, he just does the same thing every time. It's like, but you know who that is. Do you know how hard it is for a documentarian to become known? Because you can win the Academy Award once for documentary mm -hmm. because it's about stumbling upon that story that mm -hmm. one time. I mean, documentaries, especially the ones that go big, are the ones that get the most lucky. And then you have to have competent filmmaking and good ideas and creativeness, but you don't stumble upon that once-in-a-lifetime story all the time, which is why I respect somebody like Ken Burns or A Secret Base or these type of things for being able to you know, whether they have a format or whether they experiment with that format, they're able to keep telling stories and people keep watching versus some of these Academy Awards. It's not their fault. You have this this one-off. And it's like, oh, well, they're a one-hit wonder. It's like, that's just documentaries. Not every story that you spend an hour – I mean, you can spend six years doing Hoop Dreams or however long it took to make Hoop Dreams. But it's, you know, not everything is even going to be Hoop Dreams and you just spent six years. I mean, it's such a difficult field. And then the skepticism that comes when you do see someone get hit after hit of story after story that is wild and is is amazing and is Netflix twist and turny. And then you start saying, well, are they getting this lucky? Is that luck? Let's let's look into that. Are they are they telling stories um, that are true, that are accurate, and just are this nuts and they're just that lucky? You know, they just strike gold every time they dig, or are they playing with you know reality a bit? Um, and so it's funny to hear that. And with this, because like I said, this was not supposed to be this, and I've stumbled I stumbled across it in that way that you get lucky. And so I'm just grateful for for the story that I found and that was done not for me you know it, the spoilers obviously were here but it's it was Alex's um Alex's interview that kind it's Alex's music that created what this was um because every sequence in the film was based off his music and you know I talk about luck and I and and I'm glad that I've had many docu documentaries that have done well and, and, and the, on YouTube or otherwise. Um, and I'm also really hoping that continues. But, I mean, how lucky is it that the guy that wrote the Disney Channel theme wrote an album called Noir in 1998? <laughs> I and, thought you did that on I, purpose. No, I mean, I didn't – you know, that was his album. He wrote an album in 1998 called Noir, and it's amazing. It, that is just pure luck. So I do want to give somewhat of a credit to the ether and say thank you for for being for for whoever is you know whatever story got out there that is kind of allowing that those kind of happy coincidences to happen, um, but you know stuff like that or the fact and then to talk about what you were talking about as far as the legacy aspect of it, um, the idea that Alex, by all accounts from everyone I spoke with and his own words in the interview that I found only one interview that I found, he had the best outlook on legacy. Than to anybody that I could I've ever read about, you know, because I went into this with that anxiety of, you know, after I realized what this was going to start to be, and after I found out that it was Alex, um, I was like, uh oh. I listened to his music, Noir, and, and orchestral grooves, which is on Spotify, and his other music, and I was like, this is really really good. I legitimately, outside of the narrative of the film, do feel somewhat guilty that I'm going to be pigeonholing somebody. And so obviously, how do I integrate his other music? And then, you know, the whole idea comes about from there. But it's also, that's a real anxiety. But then you read the interview that he did or you speak to the people he was with and he was like, oh, he was just proud 
he was happy to do this work. He was proud of what he did. It's like, okay, so my anxiety that I was pigeonholing him is not even a system of belief that he agreed with in his life. And that is like, that's where all this kind of came together of, you know, documentaries never really have the narrative arc of a character. And we think of narratives very, you know, very bluntly and think, you know, the character starts at the beginning of the journey, they learn something that changes them, and they end you know, back where they were with a new perspective. You know, that's kind of the general narrative arc. Well, you don't really get that in documentaries that much because you rarely can change people that you're interviewing, <laughs> not that you should try to do that. Um, so it's it's a lot of, like, looking back on things like that. It's a lot of, well, you know, at this point in my life, and then I learned this. And so you get that narrative arc, but it's all past tense. And what I was really... What I stumbled upon with this and what I, again, luck and partly probably due to my ability and happiness to make these kind of things, is you got to see a present tense character growth of that moment, that monologue that I give towards the end of the film where I'm like, you know, lamenting, you know, what my legacy will be. And then the present, the present tense character growth of finding the interview, talking to his sister, talking to, you know, David and the other people, some that knew him, some that didn't talk and just change my perspective real time of this i'm like well that is that's just that's something i'm really proud of and that's you know i understand is something that can only happen because of circumstances outside of the control of the filmmaker so again the 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 uh, fortune and the the uh, the gratefulness to stumble upon this kind of thing but the idea that i was afraid legitimately of pigeonholing this person and then in an interview he does end it which is no regrets and it's like okay like that is that's powerful and i haven't even made the movie yet and that, that's that's kind of the stuff that I that I really like about the film. You don't just you just don't get to see present tense film journeys. Does that kind of make sense? That idea in in, in documentary. It's it's just a rare kind of thing that I've seen at least. You know, um, uh, maybe it's so. like lightning in a bottle a little bit, or it feels that way. Yeah, this is it for me. This is the last good one, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, well, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Corey. But yeah, I don't no, think it's. I, you know, I think you talk about, you know, an anxiety of pigeonholing, but I think the kind of the flip side of that is like you're giving this guy life in a way that, you know, he's was never going to be able to find exactly. in terms yeah. of like, mm-hmm. you know, recognition if you, someone hadn't done the digging. I mean, there's a documentary that's just been released that I think, you know, will probably go wide more. That's called All the Beauty and Bloodshed that Lotta Portress just did um, about uh, – Nan Golden and the way that, you know, she's a famous photographer who kind of pushed against the Sackler family and did a lot of really powerful things there to kind of hold them accountable and kind of get them pushed out of the art world. Um, And there's kind of a crux of that documentary that talks about the way that her sister and the struggles that her sister had kind of reverberated decades later to the point where it kind of pushed this huge powerful pharmaceutical company kind of to the brink in terms of what they had done to kind of spike the opioid epidemic. And it's just this fascinating way that documentary can like shine the light on one person that we were never going to know about Mm -hmm. and just show the impact that they've had on the world. And I think that that's what this film does for Alex. I mean, I don't think anyone was ever going to know what this guy had done and really know the beauty of just this one individual creative and what his whole body of work was able to do and what his reputation and how he treated people like it just really seems like that that's kind of, you know, why I think this is such a remarkable work is that, you know, it's just it does this in a way that like, you know, it's there's a lot of really you know, flimsy, nostalgic excavation that gets done, particularly with, you know, the late 90s, early 1000s. Like, this area is starting to become much more, you know, looked over. And I just feel like what you've done with the Funkland and what you've really done with this film is, like, 
you're you're really giving nostalgia a purpose. And I really feel like, you know, outside of just being a unifying thing in general, no one ever really tries to, like, qualify what that nostalgia means or what did it mean then and what does it mean now. And I think that's kind of the beauty of your whole project you've worked on. It's just, like, you're giving, you know, an era that has a lot of, you know, cheap nostalgia, you're giving it, like, a power that I think is going to, you know, outlast, you know, you know what's being done. I think that's why the work you're doing is so important. Thank you. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that is what I'm trying to do. I think it's, you know, for a long time I was worried. I was like, okay, this is just a little project theme park. So what am I going to do next? And then the more, you know, or th- television shows or whatever it is about, then the more I dig into this, I'm like, well, you know, if I go, you know, even the, the version of me that is in Hollywood and gets lucky and gets to direct movies, I mean, what's the height that you can do? You're directing, you know, movies that are funded and based off of nostalgia. Um, especially in modern day Hollywood. And that's not an indictment of that, although that's not necessarily my favorite thing in the world at the moment. Um, But the idea that like, even at the top of the top, what is the mate, what are the major studios green lighting? You know, yeah. What are, what conversations are, I mean, a 24 is currently producing a film and I forget the name of it, but it looks like it's straight out of 1994. And uh, that trailer that dropped, and again, I'm totally blanking on the name of my, this, this idea of nostalgia um, is, is so much more than cheap thrills if you make it that. Are you referring to After Sun? I think it was like a comic book, a comic writer or something. Oh, funny oh, pages. Funny pages. Funny pages. Yes, oh, we're I mean, this is funny this, pages this, over here. Uh, okay, yes, yeah, so this. I mean, it's a nostalgic aesthetic with mm, yeah. a nostalgic scope, I should say. You know, and yeah. I and I, I haven't seen the film, but just the trailer alone, I was like, okay, this is clearly trying to evoke, or at least the trailer editor is trying to evoke this. Um, so even in the indie scene, the big studio scene, and now in the documentary scene, this idea of nostalgia is not just, not what I think it's easy to dismiss it as, as you were saying. It's not just nothing. It's not just, oh, you know, you just can't let go of the past. It's no, that's pretty much everything that's happening except for right now. So how that's all documentaries have ever been. It's just that all of a sudden we're realizing that the 90s were 30 years ago and that the 80s were 40 years ago. And that even though these things have lasting power and people are living longer and that these aesthetics stick around, that this is just history. Like if I was in the 80s making a documentary about the 40s, it feels different than in the 20s making a documentary about the 80s. But time is still passing. You know, at a certain point, this isn't nostalgia. This is just the basis for our history. And Disney's even marketing themselves now with their animated films as this is their evolution when they're making these live action remakes. Their most recent rhetoric around it is we used to take inspiration from fairy tales of the 1800s or before. And now we're taking inspiration from our own works. And it's like, yes, that is a bit of corporate speak for we're making more live action remakes. But it's also just an interesting paradigm shift of like, yeah, this that that the previous century is history as much as we want to hang on to it. And so it's it's fascinating to explore the same way that, you know, Ken Burns in the 90s was doing stuff on the Civil War that I mean, obviously, that's a, you know, a more than a century gap. But who's to say that, you know, there shouldn't be that for 40 years back or 50 years back. So I think that's, that's something I'm definitely trying to touch on. And to go back to the idea of defunct and the idea of, um, how grateful I am for being a YouTuber because the stuff about me, you know, lamenting the idea of YouTube was definitely a, you know, uh, was a low moment in the film's narrative to 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 try to prop up the the message at the end rather than it being a hey this is this is what I want on my grave of I don't want to be known as this, uh, which is interesting to have the response be uh, 
some of the response be kind of that, which is is interesting. It's interesting to have a work uh, taken by an audience in different directions. And so I'm grateful that I made something that people are talking about and a little bit uh, worried that some people are misunderstanding. Um, but the idea that, you know, in that moment in the monologue scene where I say that, like, I don't want to be known as this, or it's it's really just me expressing an anxiety rather than me pleading that everyone call me a documentarian. Um, but what is great about YouTube, to give some of the benefits of it, is I can only prop up and do feature-length versions of the stories that deserve it. And like I was talking about earlier, Handwich, as fun as that video was to make, did not need 90 minutes. That's just the story, the truth, the, the it did not ask for that. Um, and like I said with Disney Channel and FastPass, these were supposed to be 30-minute films or 30-minute videos or whatever. And they were supposed to be fast, but the story kept asking and kept giving and kept wanting more. And that's something that really can only happen on YouTube. And that, or at the moment at least. Um, so I am grateful for that idea as well. So I just wanted to get that out there of like, that's, a, that's awesome. To, and I think that's why documentaries and video essays or whatever you want to call them on these platforms are starting to evolve into m these documentaries because, well, one, we can talk about things that may, maybe major corporations wouldn't put funding behind. And two, um, if, if it's a 20-minute thing, you can just release it and people will watch it. And that's okay because that's okay. And that's that, you know, streaming services wouldn't necessarily pick up a 20 minute thing. Um, you know, major films would not put a 20 minute documentary into, into theaters. Um, but I can release a 30 minute thing on Garfield in May and then in, in November release an hour and a half thing. It's all kind of part of the same big thing. I just think it's a fascinating evolution and I'm very excited and happy to be a part of it because I think it's, it's going to lead to better stuff. When you give people the freedom of, you can just tell the story that you need to tell rather than, hey, you have to do three hours or you have to do 30 minutes. You know, it's 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 great. So, but anyways, yeah, that, sorry. That was a long rant about that. But it was a very wonderful rant um, because I think it uh, illuminates for me why it works so much better when creators in general aren't chasing what everybody's already doing in in this sense like sometimes i go on netflix and i see like anthology sort of series that kind of relate to mm -hmm. what you're saying where they're doing like 10 episodes of a stretched out concept you know in, mm -hmm. in any kind of like limited series documentarian format where i feel like oh this feels like maybe somebody who did youtube videos or uh, something along those lines kind of just expanding to like they're chasing legacy media or trying to create something, you know, mm -hmm. as a way to legitimize themselves when they don't need to do that. Like what legitimizes their art is their art, you know, however format they want to tell their art in, at least that's my perspective. So, and that's certainly how yeah. I view yours. I would much rather you put your passion into something, however long it is, than try to, you know, graft your stuff onto another template. And uh, yeah, and I and I did want to do that route for a long time, and I'm not shying away from it. If there's if a story would benefit from that, but I, you know, I get messages, and they're all so nice. And I'm not saying don't message me nice things by any means, but like you know, oh, give this person a big budget, and I'm like, I don't know what I would do with that, because for the past four years or five or six years of this, I have been ideating and creating, you know, probably dozens of concepts in the scope that I'm able to do, a scope which admittedly is expanding as I learn more visual effects and can do more things uh, with cinematography and as I, you know, can hire more people and, and fund things myself. But it's like, you know, people are like, oh, okay, well, what's your idea? Like if I somebody asked, 
you know, if, if somebody just gave you unlimited money, what would you make? And I'm like, I probably would make this if, you know, because, because I like this and I've been ideating under the idea of, you know, this is your scope. And when you do that, that's when the best things are made. Uh, in my opinion, it's when, you know, oh, uh, well, I never want to release something and somebody be like, well, this would have been better if you had two million more dollars. Or I don't want to release a $10 million movie and somebody be like, well, that was a waste of money. He could have done that for for a million, you know, something or 10,000. You know, that's the idea. So it's kind of hard. It, it is it is that idea of like, it's not just as easy for me to not that this not that this door's open or anybody's necessarily my phone's not ringing but if somebody was like hey come to Netflix and do six episodes on something I'd be like what on what <laughs> like you know because I've been I don't know what I would do with that budget um, and because I I have dozens of ideas for my my status right now so anyways but yeah that's kind of it's it's kind of a weird thing to be in a weird position to be in uh, but but I'm happy because I love I love making this stuff so. I guess that means, Corey, we should not pitch Kevin our Michael Eisner, The Last Dance series. You wanted to, we'll just scrap <laughs> hey, that. that I, no, hey, I'm not shying. I'm not shying away from that. No, I, I could see the, hey, the million dollar, the $10 million version of Disney War. I mean, that's, <laughs> let's, let's do it. I want to see it. Um, uh, I, in, yeah. in all seriousness, though, I, I don't know, Corey, if you had any other questions, like really like relevant to um, this itself. But I did, I did have like one question about Disney, like Disney in general. Uh, because okay. I mean, we're, we're talking about this, like this is the week that Iger, Bob Iger is back, the ultimate Disney yeah. reboot. And I, I, I thought this was an, uh, something like to have the opportunity to, to ask you this because Chappic, of course, big parks guy. And, you know, I've long sort of been following along with the, the Disney sort of <laughs> how, how they've kind of changed over the last decade or so not changed, I guess, but like how the parks have become more and more of a priority. And this is more related to your fast pass video, but uh, I do think Disney channel kind of comes in here too, uh, to some extent, but yeah, did you, when, when this news kind of broke this past week, did you, did you have any like thoughts on the current state of Disney? Because I feel like they're kind of in a weakened state at the moment, but obviously still very popular uh, Titans of industry and all of that. I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Well, I had some thoughts because it happened five hours after I released my video. I was, <laughs> I was in the news for all of four hours. No, it, yeah. and it was, no, I saw that like as I was falling asleep, and I was like, oh great, uh, people are going to want this uh, to for me to do something on this, which is you know may, may someday, of course. Uh, you know, it's it's weird talking about modern Disney is is interesting because I think it's a lot of speculation. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that do talk and they do know things. I think the company itself. Um, under Chapek, from everything I've heard, was not in the strongest state that it's been. Um, and, you know, I don't have any major hot takes other than I think this is a, you know, we don't know anything other than history. And if you look at history, I, you know, unless I'm having some giant oversight, uh, Chapek was the first Parks chair to become CEO. Because Iger came from ABC and then was president, and then Eisner came from Paramount, and then Walker, Tatum, and, and Roy Disney obviously were already in the executive branch. I don't even think there was a parks division at that point. So the idea that, you know, I, I think people want to, I think a lot of reporters especially are like, here's what's going to happen. And it's like, you have no idea what's going to happen, especially because, you know, you got Josh Tomorrow, who is the current parks head. Oh, it's his fault. Oh, it's not his fault. It's, not, it's like, well... We've never had a parks chief become CEO. 
So I don't know what the answer is, but I just know that this hasn't happened before. Um, as far as his performance inside the company, I think there was enough Hollywood Reporter articles to know that people were not thrilled by some of the things that were going on. Um, but just as far as the parks go, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I think people really want to be right. And I think when Iger was announced being back, I think that was a good point where if I was not releasing a video, I would just start saying, see, everybody, you don't know anything. Like Because <laughs> if I would have asked you a week ago if Iger would ever come back, you'd say, oh, that's just a bunch of fan fiction that would never happen and now it's our reality so i I think this is you know you never think michael ovitz is going to come to the disney company and then you never think he's going to be out in a year you never think that michael eisner and jeffrey katzenberg and and all these are they're going to come in and save disney you you didn't think that you didn't think it's it's you know history this is history and you're living it and i think people because of the instantness of twitter and how uh, journalism is like by the second people really want to tell you how things are going to be and it's like no you just got to let i mean yeah it, it's interesting to see uh predictors and analysts and people like that just be so wrong i will say this i think jim kramer is a huge disney parks fan um because he was uh the you know the stock guy um the money that's his name right yeah. jim kramer yeah, like a week it. before JPEG got fired, he's like, "We need to fire Bob JPEG," and then they did. And then, and then, right after Iger got back, Jim Cramer's on his show again, saying Disney needs to expand the theme parks. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this guy's a parks fan because he is just manipulating the market because I think he wants more rides or more. He wants a fifth gate at Walt Disney World or something. If if Jim Cramer's out there saying he wants to uh, to build Disney's America, everybody should be really worried because he has a lot of influence, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that, that's my that's my soft takes on it. I just think it's interesting. This is a very big historical thing that I'm sure we will learn more about uh, when James Stewart writes Disney War Two. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for that. I appreciate your perspective because yeah, it's mm-hmm. it is unfolding, and it's one of those things where in the future I want to know some of the inside details behind all kinds of things like. The, the Avatar sequels, like, is this really coming down to because they put so much money into Pandora Land or whatever and they got to, you know, do what they got to do with uh, James Cameron? And well, yeah, my, my guess, my knows. guess on that would just be that you t- too many times people didn't bet on James Cameron and every time they were wrong. That's true. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe this will be the one time a James Cameron doesn't make his money. But uh, yeah, anytime before, you know, oh, Avatar and Titanic. And I mean, eventually you just got to be like, maybe this guy just is ma- makes things that make money. I mean, just yeah. from history. Maybe he's so just I think, a really great director. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe this guy knows how to make money and like make movies that are good enough to then make money or something like that. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't think it had anything to do with Avatar Land, but I will say I think Avatar Land is the first um, theme park land that added fans to the franchise, rather than you know I don't I don't think I don't think. I don't think anybody was like, I'm never going to Walt Disney World. Oh, wait, they have an Avatar Land? Let's go. That's awesome. Um, Chinese you tourists. Know, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Because they're yeah, huge maybe, fans. Maybe that. Maybe that's where the fan base is. But I think that, that I think uh, Avatar and Flight of Passage and everything they did at Animal Kingdom legitimately generated mm-hmm. excitement for Avatar 2 in a way that no other theme park land did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's, you know. It's officially a theme park movie now. It's up there with Pirates of the Caribbean, I yeah, guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Fly the Passage, coming to theaters next year. Um, yeah, well, that'd be great. Any uh, last uh, questions you had, Corey? 
Yeah, you know, that's kind of the cliche thing to ask somebody at the end of a podcast like this. But, you know, what's next? Like, I know that yeah. you're probably going to take a nice breather here. But, you know, I'm I looking have forward not. to your 90-minute <laughs> uh, expose on Splash Mountain um, as somebody who grew up going to Disney World and was incredibly confused about how in the world that ride made it so long. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I mean, what's next for you? Oh, you know, I'm... I got. I think the next thing that I have out there, and that I'm pretty sure I'm going to, you know, I have other. I have a lot of stuff that I'd like to do. I think I have. Um, my my big thing is I've been working on this project, Funkland Season Three, for a long time, and it's this long overarching narrative that I haven't worked on for two years, but I've been working on, as I mentioned, that kind of tribute album, visual album, very experimental. I'm hoping to get that out, you know, in the next six months. Um, and then after that, my big feature that I really want to do that I'm really passionate about, we'll see if it ends up being anything, but I could see it being a feature is a deal or no deal, um, which I know is a little bit out of left field maybe. Um, but uh, but that's the one that I really think has has some legs and it's long overdue for a – you know, in the same way the fast pass tackled queuing, I think deal or no deal could tackle probability and odds and uh, and some of the like the psychology of of um of that show and then of of everything surrounding it. So so yeah, that, that's kind of a soft pitch. But you know, I, I am interested. I've always been interested in game shows, and you know, people want to want me to do all sorts of different types of television shows. But I think the really only the basis for needing for defunct land is you know it has to be something historical it has to be a good story and i it has to be something that's highly themed um you know i i don't think i could do necessarily the history of seinfeld at least not in the current version of my channel but i don't know there's a hyper reality to certain game shows like deal or no deal that just it just feels feels part of that otherworldly theme park energy it also helps that it was filmed at universal studios but that's besides the point so you know so stuff like that um just uh just to talk about i i also am very much interested in 2000s um the early aughts and that kind of that history uh, as as the night as you said the 90s is becoming kind of a a uh a hotbed i mean the last dance and stuff like that um it was called The Last Dance, right? The Michael Jordan uh, doc- yeah, yeah. series. I mean, people are going hard on the 90s. And, of course, uh, me trying to be a contrarian and my stubbornness is like, all right, we're moving into the 2000s. We got the, the, the 90s. Not that I'm never going back to the 90s or the 80s or any of that. But there's something about the early aughts that just feels very unexplored. And, obviously, we're now 20 years out from it, <laughs> um, which is hard to think about that, you mm-hmm. know. It's going to be the 20th anniversary of the premiere of Deal or No Deal in two years, so that's that's, uh, that's so, so so just stuff like that. So that that's one thing, and also I have a project that you know these are all things that I you know I might just get into, and I, I trash projects a lot. Um, you know when I'm like, oh, there's nothing here, sorry, and uh, and it's, and everyone always asks, well, well, what's some of the most interesting ideas that you've like not done? And said, well, they're they're not interesting. I can tell you, that. <laughs> I can tell you that much. I, I don't I don't make something I don't find something interesting and then be like, nah. It's always like it's always the most boring thing you've ever heard of. And everyone, uh, I, I think people, you know, in, in the in the theme park world. Um, you know, you have canceled attractions and people are, oh my gosh, you got to see how cool this would have been. And, and because they didn't build it a lot of times because it was so blue sky that it was just impossible to build, but they had that concept. They're like, oh, it's so cool. And so I think that energy gets kind of, you know, every now and then I'll do a Q and A and people like, well, what's something that you didn't do that you wanted to do? And I was like, uh, well, and then I, I give them an answer. Like, uh, there was this arcade on one of the Disney cruise line shows. It was just an arcade. And yeah, just, it was, it was they're like, oh, was it like, like themed and I'm like, nope, 
it was just an arcade. And they're like, well, that's not very interesting. I'm like, yeah, that's that's why I didn't do a documentary yeah, yeah. on it. Um, but anyways, I might trash some of these ideas. I think another one that I'm really speculating with is uh, um, after I got good, big into 3D modeling, and because Defunct MVR is something that we have like a team of volunteers doing, but I would like to... Um, kind of do like a similar to how I did this investigation, but less with my persona in it and more just kind of watching a space get recreated, like choose a, a, a portion of a theme park or an attraction or specifically a room at a theme park and just like find every available image or video and then kind of do a memory and archive like a time traveling reconstruction, something that touches on the ideas of a memory and spaces and, uh, and just uh what's another word a scale i'm just interested in because theme parks mess with your brain obviously it's a very common understanding that theme park scale is a different thing so you know i think with the funked theme parks it's very interesting in that because they're gone you forget they were messing with your scale and so you just consider that canon or you consider that the truth you're like look at how big alien encounter was this alien was huge and all this stuff and that's just cement and that's cemented and that's just versus the ca- the main street you walk down and you're like oh the the top floor windows are a little smaller than the bottom ones and to to like reconstruct something that in, has been cemented in your brain is huge because you haven't walked it in a long time and then just get to like walk around that space again even virtually is something that I'm experimenting with I have no idea what that would become but these are some of the concepts that i'm i'm circling around and just a lot lot more uh a lot more quick hitters hopefully uh some 20 30 minute stuff i love doing that too so lots and lots of stuff i could talk about it all day but yeah lots of plenty of stuff coming up i have so many like that opens up so many questions i have and i don't want to take any more of your time well i, I just you know, have you, can, you can ask I just had the thought, I was like, man, what is it like going to like a theme park with you? <laughs> like, Do you ever go with like friends who are like just kind of like with you? But I could see it going one of two ways where you're just like, you know, nerding out over everything or you're just being really stoic and, you know, observing and, and being contemplative about like, I could make a video about that. That's not interesting enough. You know, that kind of thing. Well, the, uh, you know, it's that classic uh, my friends uh, that I go to theme parks with are they, 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 they only listen to my rants to amuse me. Um, they're uh <laughs> You know, it's that it's the you're you're only famous this weekend as uh, is like a phrase that uh, I think Jenny Nicholson told me whenever talking about I think she did a video on BronyCon. Yeah, she did. And and just that idea of like, uh, well, you're only you're you're only famous when you release a video. And then when you're with your friends at a theme park, you're like, look at all this stuff. And they're like, can we just please go to Rock and Roller Coaster for once? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forget that. Like, I'm just a nerd. And that I found a little bricks. uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I forget that I forget that I found a a pocket little community here. Um, But I I do. I I do love doing it. And and, and that's not that's not a, a dig at any of my my friends but i do go on rants and a lot of times i'll be like okay and you can tell they're i'm like oh oh right i forget that this isn't everybody's job (laughs) (laughs) and uh not everyone's as as uh as absolutely you know uh obsessed with it as i am but no i I do i do go and i do and uh my theme park friends especially uh some of the other youtubers we do go and we're just like look at this this and this uh what was a good example my friend uh one of my friends we went to and just we were like we're gonna go to epcot and we're gonna open every door and that we can because the world should not not cast member only doors but there's a lot of doors in epcot that like sometimes are open if you ever if you ever go to epcot you know in world showcase specifically they have like a few little museum exhibits that hmm. 
are like closed during slow season, but during peak season, they will open. So there's one in Norway and we found one in Morocco. It was like a women's dune sand racing simulator. Like these are very much, you're supposed to go in there. It's just that they're not always open. And yeah, that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, I got to go home because I'm going to come up with too many video ideas. If I stay here too long, (laughs) that's just too much. But, yeah, my yeah, my so. wife ran the Disney Marathon, and I'm sure that like if you had been if you've done the marathon, if, I don't know if you have, but if like you had like she like ran like through like all those kind of like closed areas yeah. and stuff, I could see you just being like, oh my gosh, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I don't go anywhere I'm not supposed to, but I every now and then for some reason or another, like whether it's an event or whether I'm, you know, every now and then you will be like for instance. Uh, like if you do, if you, if you try to exit the Magic Kingdom during fireworks, if you've ever done that, they'll send you backstage or you'll get mm. evac'd off a ride. And it's like, well, that's just how you get out. Like, because you can't walk down Main Street when the fireworks are going on. So they will, you know, they'll set it up and it's complete. You're supposed to do that. But yeah, that's the time when I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing the back of Main Street. This is, it's the best. It's like Christmas morning. It's like, it's I for hate me it. going. They do you that hate, to me on Rise of the it? Resistance. Like they made oh, us gotta, go through their awesome. offices. Well, no, because it like ruined the whole thing. <laughs> they like we had to like get off and like go through like their like rooms and stuff because it's like something had broken and like you just oh. you see it all and it's like ah, uh, it's like meeting your yeah. hero. I hated it. No, no, no. See, that's for me. The the real theme park is when the things break and they send you. You know, that's the best part. Or <laughs> yeah, like lights go. on when you go through the people mover and Space Mountain has its maintenance lights on. Yeah, that's 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 the real theme park for me. My favorite theme park is the one that is broken and has its lights on. That's <laughs> so I, I get a true theme. artist. <laughs> uh, yeah, true, true uh, theme park uh, nerd. So, but yeah, but yeah, lots of. Anyways, the point of that was I have lots of video ideas um, coming on my way. <laughs> so I'm very excited um, to keep to keep making stuff. We're excited for you. We're big fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, well, whenever I you. see your stuff come on, I'm like, all right, it's time to sit down and, uh, you know, have a little adventure here. So oh, um, thank you. That means a lot. This conversation has been an adventure. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and being so like, you know, frank and like insightful. And, you know, it's just mm-hmm. it's just so cool to hear really like what your process is and, you know, kind of what you have coming down the line. It's uh, I, I hope that people will like, you know, see a little bit more of like the the space mountain lights open up when they hear this conversation about uh kevin perger so you know there you go um cory any, anything else that you had i don't want to no i mean I, you know i just echo what john said i literally just watched the tomb raider video you did the other day oh, that's a I good just, one like, flooded all the memories back of how bizarre that ride was like the one time i went to king's island in middle school so i mean i think that's just oh, the yeah. beauty of that channel is just like, you know, you're, you're really going into those nooks and crannies that people forget about and don't always think about. And I don't know. It's just, it's just such a, a valuable work. Thanks for well, keeping thank the dream so alive. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes. Yeah. The, the, the memories, the, mem- the, the memories of the dream alive. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. It was great. We really appreciate it. Be sure to check out defunct land. It's on YouTube. Of course, we'll link to it. You know what the score and, uh, you know, congratulations on an awesome video, Kevin. We uh, can't wait for the next one. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it.